On Champagne and Murder, Please, we talk about some sensitive topics not meant for younger audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Hello and welcome, true crime friends. And good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, depending on what time you, or good night, depending on what time you're <laughs> tuning in. Whatever works for you. Hey, whatever, whatever gets you going. <laughs> whatever floats your boat. Mm-hmm. We hope you guys have had a great week. Because we have. Because we have. What did you do this week, Mark? A whole lot of not much. Really enjoyed the rain. Yeah. That's now yeah. turned to ice and then snow. Gotta love um, it. Love the Midwest. All the seasons and In one, one to two day. day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, nothing like a 30 to 40 degree temperature drop to really get you started. <laughs> nice thing it's a little bit white out there, so just in time for Christmas. It looks so, dirty. Yeah, it does for now until it's just brown again. The girls thought it was pretty cool. Because it is pretty cool. It is pretty cool. The boys just look at it like, meh, whatever. Do I have to shovel something? Do I, <laughs> do I have to oh, go salt the deck? Again? This is stupid. Why are we putting salt down, guys? Why do we live where the air hurts our face? Uh, because we were born here. That's oh, why. That's right. Damn it. Toes in the kish. Toes in the kish. Toes in the kish. How about you? How's your week been? My week has been good. I've been able to uh, drive around. It's been, mm. it's been really fancy because we have another car again. Oh, yeah? <laughs> well, that's exciting. <laughs> it's very exciting. John gets the new car. And he has to take it to work, so I get the other one, and I totally love it, so it's fine. What's the uh, new one? The new one's a Kia. Oh, Kia. Kia. Not sponsored by Kia, so we're probably going to delete that until they decide to sponsor us. But yeah, jerks. That's nice. You know, so. <laughs> no, it's been good. I've been able to take the littlest one to preschool and the oldest one to work. Man, back to a two-vehicle household. Back to two-vehicle Technically four, but only two that work. Two that are functioning. <laughs> Big time and then small town right there. That's right. That's wonderful. So what you drinking? Uh, we are drinking a recommendation from Miss Tara, who's going to be on the pod soon, I was promised. Um, we are drinking the Schramsberg Blanc de Blanc, and it retails for about $40. And she wanted us to try that one today, so we're trying it. What do you think? It's pretty nice. I think it's pretty bubbly. Refreshing. Like um, smooth but crisp. Smooth but crisp. I think you're right. I, like I mean, I'm that. more of a wine person, usually. I'm more of a truly person. Or beer. Truly. Cheap, <laughs> cheap beer. So thank you, Tara, for that. Thanks, Tara. Love you. Also, we got a follow from a fellow podcast. Oh, yeah? Which one's that? Oh, my God. I was so excited. It's Don't Fuck With Ghosts. Yeah, because you shouldn't. Because you shouldn't. And it's Betsy and Greer, and they are hilarious, and I love them. You guys should go check them out. Um, Their favorite thing is to don't fuck with Ouija boards, which obviously you shouldn't. I don't think I have. It's one thing I try to avoid. I'm glad that you haven't. I think I did when I was younger. But that's because I was stupid and listened to other people. I feel like you don't fuck with Ouija boards, bikers, or truckers. Yep, and that about covers all the bases. That's or kids, all really unless it's, let's see, April Fool's Day or Halloween. Well, then, then you can totally Fair fuck game. with children. Yes. 
So who's going to go first today? I think uh, you went first last time. Yeah. Would you, you like to go, go first? Oh, oh that'd first. Be, let's change it up. Shake it up a little bit. You Shaking know? it up. I like it. Sounds great. Let's do it. So my story today is about the monster of Florence. My sources were Britannica.com and, of course, AllThat'sInteresting.com. Dot com. So, Il Maestro di Friens, Italian serial killer or killers that murdered at least 16 people in the hills outside of Florence between 1968 and 1985. Ooh, big, big range. Big range there. But you'll see why. While the crimes have never been solved... The relatives of several victims are now demanding a new investigation, claiming key evidence was overlooked. The monster of Florence insidiously targeted couples who were engaged in sexual activity in remote areas. The killer used a twenty-two Beretta pistol to murder eight couples and was never caught. While few suspects emerged, with some being convicted over the years, not all of the murders have been accounted for. The monster of Florence began killing on August 21st, 1968, when he gunned down 29-year-old Antonio Lobianco and his 32-year-old sister-in-law, Barbara Lochi, with the 22 in the town of Signa. They had been murdered in their own car as Lochi's daughter had been asleep in the back seat. Barbara's husband, Stefano Mele, became the primary suspect because it's always the spouse. Were they engaged in some activities? They were engaged in some activities. Uh, I don't think... uh, Yeah, I I don't think that was a good idea. But prosecutors successfully argued that he, above all others, had motive to kill her because of her affair. Mm. However, while Stefano was incarcerated, another couple was killed with the same gun. The victims this time, Pascal... Gentacor and Stefania Petini died while knocking boots in this Fiat 127 on September 15th, 1974. was ultimately stabbed 96 times. 96? After how? he was shot? Or yeah. Did, yeah. Ooh. Yeah. How, how long do you have to sit there to stab somebody 96 times? That's a... Um, how angry are you? Dedication. It seems personal. Probably the spouse. It probably is. Goddamn spouses. (laughs) So she was stabbed 96 times and her genitals were mutilated. Ew. And that didn't happen on the first murder? No. Just just just, shooting. Just the next one. Hmm. And on June 6th, 1981, warehouse worker Giovanni Foggy and his fiancée Carmela Di Nuccio Nuccio, sorry. These are all Italian and I'm not going to get any of them right. I'm glad you have the story. You're welcome. (laughs) They were gunned down and stabbed while sexually engaged in their car. The monster of Florence carved Denuccio's pubic area out with a knife and kept it. Hmm. How do they know he kept it? Because they they couldn't find it. Ah. Yeah. I mean, talk about keeping a trophy. I want to say, hopefully it was a decent trophy. (laughs) (laughs) Stefano Baldi and his fiancée, Susanna Cambry, were killed in the same exact manner on October 23, 1981. Cambry's pubic area and part of her thigh were cut out and missing. Then almost eight months later, on June 19, 1982, Paolo Marinardi and his fiancée, Antonella, I'm going to say this one wrong, Migliorini, 
were oh, shot dead after having sex in his car on a country road. But at least those guys got to finish. I hope. <laughs> I hope so, too. An anomaly. If you're going to go out. Oh, my God. You if you're going to go out, you might as well have finished. <clears throat> for fuck's sake. Help a person out, you know. <laughs> help, help a person out here. An anomaly occurred September 19th, 1983. Two German men vacationing from Italy or in Italy, William Friedrich Horst Meyer and Jens U. Ruch hmm. were killed in their car. The next two victims, Claudio Stefanacci and Pia Gilrotini, were shot dead on July 29th, 1984. Rotini's genitalia was missing. What is it with this guy mm. and genitalia? Or girl. Or or female, yeah, or lady. Did, did their mother not love them? Uh, I, I don't want to know. Gross. The last known couple killed by the quote-unquote monster was Jean Michelle. This one's going to be bad. Cravicelli and Nadine Muriot. They were French lovers camping in the countryside when they were shot September 7th, 1985. Muriot's body was mutilated and the killer mailed part of her breast and a letter to the state prosecutor at the time, Sylvia Delmonica. Hmm. Nadine Muriot's daughter, Estelle Lanciotti, recently asked attorney, attorney Walter Biscotti to help her find her mother's killer. Maria was one of the four women whose breasts and genitals were mutilated by the monster of Florence. Biscotti's call for a reinvestigation on March 25th, 2022, centered on police incompetence. He believes that certain suspects and DNA from various anonymous letters were never thoroughly analyzed. He said, we are looking for the truth with the new investigation, and we're convinced that there are elements in the old case files that were wrongly overlooked. We want a fresh look at a lead concerning a suspect named in an old police file who was never investigated properly, as well as DNA found on the anonymous letter. Mm -hmm. Carmela DiNuccio's relatives have asked Biscotti to look into one suspect in particular, farmer Pietro Pacchiani became a person of interest in 1994 when an anonymous tip led to his arrest. Ooh. He was ultimately convicted of six or seven, depending on which article you go off of, of the eight murders, and also for raping his daughters. Mm. He just, just tossed that Throw one in there. there. Yeah. yeah. So it's not, is he already in jail, I assume? No, he wasn't. Oh. He was sentenced to life in prison. But in 1996, his conviction was overturned. Despite Italy's highest appeals court overruling this, Pacchiani died of a heart attack at 73 years old in 1998. Prosecutors believe that he didn't work alone and had attacked couples with his friends Mario Vanni and Giancarlo Lotti. While they were found guilty of four of the eight murders, Biscotti said that none of the trials so far have gotten to the whole truth. And while five accused men have been in jail at one point for the crimes, they were eventually released when another murder occurred during their incarceration. So if they were working together, potentially someone else could have... Right. Hmm. If, But they had five people in yeah. all at once. They didn't say who the five were, though. Yeah, it's interesting. Biscotti is confident that reopening the case files of Pietro Pacchiani will bring him closer to the truth. 
The farmer had been previously described by prosecutors as sexually obsessive and ruthlessly violent. He would frequently visit local brothels with Vanny and Lottie, and the later of the latter of whom confessed to four of the killings. Biscotti has not only found various inconsistencies in Lottie's confession, however, he's grown curious about another suspect named Giampiero Vigilanti, who was a close friend of Pacchiani. Vigilanti was once a suspect in the killings. Police had even searched his home in the 1980s and found ominous signs that he may have been involved. He had newspaper clippings about the victims and even had the same type of bullets used in the killings. Hmm. His residence suggested an obsession with the murders. And now 90 years old, Vigilanti is getting a closer look. As for the anonymous... Anonymous? (laughs) Abominous. As for the anonymous letter from 1985 sent to Della Monica, the recovered DNA wasn't a match to Pacchiani, but it could still be a match to Vigilante. While the true identity of the monster of Florence remains a mystery, authorities may be closer than ever to solving this macabre case once and for all. The crimes have since inspired best-selling books like Thomas Harris's Hannibal and a TV show starring Antonio Banderas. Ooh. Mm, Majestic. They didn't say what it was, though. Just just starring it is. We can't say what it was. We can't say. We'd have to kill you if we told you. All the while, amateur sleuths believe satanic cults or even law enforcement itself has been involved. Hopefully, Walter Biscotti can find some justice for the victims and their families. And that is the monster of Florence. So how does, like... They can reopen the case as long as... As long as they have more evidence to go on or a reason to open it. Because I feel like, especially in the 80s and even 90s, if they do revisit some of the DNA, that would be very, very helpful. Just yes. if those parents still... Or those people are still alive or not. Yep, they still have family out there fighting for it, so... Ooh. I hope they get some answers. Yeah. I feel like you get one person to talk and maybe they'll... Just Let the dominoes go. fall. Let it go. I like it. Well, thank you for that. You're welcome. I'm excited for your story. So am I. <laughs> Thank you for that delightful story. Um, bear with me here for the Boston Strangler. Sources, crimemuseum.com. From June 1962 through January 1964, 13 single women between the ages of 19 and 85 were murdered throughout the Boston area. It's quite a large range. That's, yeah. I mean, I've wow. seen some gilps in my day, but still, whew. Many people believe that at least 11 of these murders were committed by the same individual because of the similar manner in which each murder was committed. It was believed that the women all who, or who all lived alone knew their attacker and let him in, or that he disguised himself as a repairman or a delivery man to get the women to voluntarily let them into their apartments. I would not let anybody into my house. I'm just weird like that, though. And there was also, would that be like the same, like pre-cable Probably, so like... Yeah, like the cable guy with Jim Carrey. Uh-huh. <laughs> where's, the, where's the leak, ma'am? Where's the leak? Uh, in every case, the victims had been raped, sometimes with foreign objects, and their bodies laid out nude, as if on display for a pornographic snapshot. Yeah, very gross. Death was always due to strangulation, uh, though the killer sometimes also used a knife. The ligature, a stocking, pillowcase, whatever was inevitably left around the victim's neck, tied with an exaggerated ornamental bow. Really? Like he's wrapping them up like a gift? Yep. 
to himself. This series of crimes was often referred to as the Silk Stocking Murders, and the sought-after attacker became known as the Boston Strangler. A couple of years before the Silk Stocking Murders began... Whoa! <laughs> just hit my chair there and just <clears throat> feel like a child now. <clears throat> Come to my level, Lord. Wow. Come to my wow. level. <laughs> oh, jeez. A couple of years before the Silk Stocking murders began, a series of uh, sex offenses. I gotta start. <laughs> a couple of years before the Silk Stocking murders began, a series of sex offenses began in the Cambridge, Massachusetts area. A smooth-talking man in his late twenties went door to door looking for young women. Well, who doesn't? <laughs> or not, hey, or men, whatever, or, or whatever men, you're into. Whatever you're into, just no children. Exactly. That's why I said 20s, not okay, teens. Good. If a young woman answered the door, he would introduce himself as a talent scout from the modeling agency looking for new models. If she was interested, he would tell her that he needed to get her measurements. Many women expressed interest and allowed him to measure them with his measuring tape. He would then fondle the women as he looked, or as he took their measurements. Several women contacted the police, and this man was referred to as the Measuring Man. That is uh, something. That's a sneaky way to get to. Yep, got gotcha. You know, can't just offer to buy him a drink first. You just go right for it. That's go for the creeper. You got it. <laughs> In March 1960, police caught a man breaking into a house. He confessed, he confessed to a burglary, and without any prompting, he also confessed to being the measuring man. The man's name was Albert DeSalvo. The judge sentenced DeSalvo to 18 months in jail, but he was released after 11 months for good behavior. Can we talk about how everybody gets released for good behavior? Especially when you're doing all this. And then it escalates right not, after. Not good behavior things. Yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. Surprise, surprise. Let's see. You ready for this? Following his release, he began a new crime spree throughout Massachusetts, Connecticut, Rhode Island, and New Hampshire. All four, huh? Yep, the big four. During the spree, DeSalvo, while dressed in green, broke into over 400 homes and sexually assaulted over 300 women, while police throughout New England were in search of the green man. Very creative at this time. Captain Obvious, i Next time it's going to be the Mustache Man. <laughs> the Brown Man. Yeah, the Muffin Man. The Muffin Man? That lives on Drury Lane. <laughs> uh, Boston Homicide Detectives continued their search for the Boston Strangler. In October 1964, a young woman who was one of the Green Man's victims came forward to police saying that the man posing as a detective entered her house and sexually assaulted her. From her description of the man, the police were able to identify the man as Albert DeSalvo. Jeez. I mean, a man of many hats, I guess. Or many colors, or many jobs. A photo of DeSalvo was published in the newspapers, and several women came forward to identify him as their attacker. He was arrested on a rape charge and was sent to Bridgewater State Hospital for psychiatric observation, where he befriended convicted murderer George Nasser. Oh. Company you keep. You know, the company you keep. Hey, Albert, just go ahead and meet George. You know, you think y'all have fun. You think they'd keep? I mean, this was the '60s, but you think you'd keep people, especially in those situations, from befriending each other? They didn't know any better. Yep. 
It is speculated that the two worked out a deal to split the reward, the reward money if one of them confessed to being the Boston Strangler. DeSalvo confessed, uh, confessed to, his con, uh, to his attorney, F. Lee Bailey, that he was the Boston Strangler. Though DeSalvo's ability to describe the murders in accurate detail, Bailey believed DeSalvo was, in fact, the Strangler. After hours of questioning where DeSalvo uh, described murder by murder, the details of the victims' apartments, what they wore, the police were convinced that they had the killer. Probably because they did. Or maybe George told him about all of this. Or George. Who knows? Probably not, though. Doubt it. Despite his confession, uh, there was no physical evidence to link Albert Salvo to the stocking or the silk stocking murders. Uh, doubt remained, and the police brought the Strangler's one surviving victim, Gertrude Gruen, to the prison to identify the man she fought off as he attempted to strangle her. To observe her reaction, the police brought two men from the prison. Uh, brought, let's see here. Uh, brought through two two men through the prison lobby. First was Nasser, and the second was DeSalvo. Gruen said that the second man, DeSalvo, was not the man. However, she saw the first man, Nasser. She felt there was something upsetting, something frighteningly familiar about that man. Through it all, DeSalvo's wife, family, and friend never believed he was capable of being the strangler. Wait, he had a wife. Uh huh. And friends. And family. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because there was no physical evidence, he did not, or and he did not match witness descriptions. He was never tried for any of uh, any of the Boston Strangler murders. He was, however, sent to prison for life for the rapes and sexual assaults from the Green Man case. Well, at least there's that. Talk about some crazy stuff. Yeah. You know, I don't think he did these ones, but all of this. But all the other mm-hmm. ones, totally, totally him. Where you been, honey? Uh, just out dressed as a green man. No big deal. Why are you dressed in all green? Don't worry about it. Oh. Read about you in the newspaper. <laughs> okay. We're, oh, you were at bowling? Oh, okay, I thought it was. A, I thought it was a different green man. Oh. Yeah. Olive who, green, not mint. Who knows? Uh, let's see. He was sent to Wax or Walpole Maximum Security Prison. In 1967, to serve a sentence, but six years later, he was stabbed to death in his cell. Oh no! After nearly 50 years, <clears throat> oh, there we go. <laughs> no one has ever been charged as the Boston Strangler. In July 2013, the Boston Police Department believed they had discovered DNA evidence linking Albert DeSalvo to Mary Sullivan, who had been raped and strangled in 1964, the final victim of the Boston Strangler. After taking DNA from DeSalvo's nephew, the Boston police said it was a near certain match to DNA to DNA evidence found on Mary Sullivan's body and on a blanket taken from her apartment. Upon this discovery, the court ordered the exhumation of DeSalvo's body. After extracting DNA from DeSalvo's femur and some from his teeth, it was determined that DeSalvo was the man who killed and raped Mary Sullivan. While the case of Mary Sullivan's murder has been closed, the mystery of the Boston Strangler still remains open to speculation. I am grateful this brings closure to me and my mother most of all, Sherman said, his voice shaking with emotion. He got choked up, took a breath, and continued talking. For all these years, it was just me and her chasing this case, Sherman said. It took 49 years for police to say they legitimately got him. But Elaine Sharp, a lawyer for DeSalvo's family, insisted that police have not legitimately identified Albert as the Boston Strangler. She added that his nephew did not know that he had been followed and inadvertently inadvertently provided the evidence uh, for the search warrant. 
that will lead to the body being exhumed 30 years after it was buried. Just because they had DNA, Sharp said, doesn't mean Albert DeSalvo killed her. Are you serious? Are you serious right now? That's lawyer, man. Lawyer life. Liar life? Got it. <laughs> so, wow. yeah. I like how how she said that <laughs> he inadvertently provided the evidence for the search warrant. The evidence. Which is why. Which is why there was a search warrant. Mm-hmm. Wow. All right. Loud stuff. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome. The uh, the 60s. I'm glad Yay, we're over the that. Yeah, 60s. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'd say how far we've come, but have we? But have you we? Know? I, don't, mm. I don't know. I don't know. I still wouldn't answer my door for anybody. People come down my driveway and I'm like, who is that? What do you want? What are you doing? Don't come down my driveway. I don't, I don't know who you are. Not, not in this driveway. Not in this driveway. Not in this driveway. No, thank you. I don't want whatever you're selling. Ma, get the shotgun. <laughs> get the pellet gun. Ma, get right the Ma, get the twenty-two. <laughs> oh. Oh. Thank you, as always, for taking the time to listen to Champagne and Murder. Please, we really do appreciate it. Mark, do you remember where they can find us? On the interweb. On the interwebs. <laughs> Champagne and Murder, please at gmail.com If you have any stories that you would like to send to us. We are also on Facebook and Twitter. No, we're not. No, we're not. The Instagram. <laughs> Twitter's stupid. Um, and we're also on Tiki Talk. I don't, I don't know how good that's going to go over, but uh, we have faces for podcasting. That's all I'm going to say. Been waiting for a good TikTok <laughs> experience. Waiting for a good Tiki Talk. So if you like us, feel free to give us a couple stars, preferably five. Preferably five. Maybe a follow. Maybe a share. Tell your friends. Tell your neighbors. Tell your mom. Tell the people that you don't like. Tell your dad. <laughs> Tell your sisters. Tell your brothers. <laughs> Tell your nieces. Tell your nephews. <laughs> and remember, don't, don't take, take candy, candy from, from strangers. strangers. Goodbye. Toodaloo.